0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. It is always tempting to look at the past and argue for a clear through-line, some approved or correct thread of causality that explains the present and illuminates the future. Of course, Regardless of interpretation, such a chain-link must occur somehow. Anyone who argues that it doesn't would have to abandon the idea of cause and effect entirely. To know that fluoride prevents cavities while also arguing that history cannot reasonably deal with causality is a destructive and irresponsible hypocrisy. This is not, however, to dismiss the critical difficulty of the task. Scaling up to the cause and effect for entire culture complexes increases uncertainty astronomically. The trick for the telling and retelling of history is to try to come as close as possible to a factual teleology, or at least to get closer than someone else did. The reason I bring up such an abstract side to historiography is that today's episode looks at one of those characters who throws a curve into the usual, more straightforward reading of the history of architecture. If one looks upon the founding and early years of the Bauhaus through standard-issue lenses, certain facts will doubtlessly appear and just as rapidly be swept under the rug. While this legendary design school has borne much of the credit and blame for modernism in the 20th century, the history of the institution as it happened is, to put it one way, hardly monolithic. We left off last week with the two leading figures of the Werkbund, Hermann Mottesius and Henry Velde, aligned when it came to the modern reform of industry and architecture, but fundamentally at odds on the role of the architect. In 1914, Motesius argued that designers should strive to express solutions in forms that elevated a standardized type. Vandevelde argued exactly the opposite, namely, that individual artistic expression was of the greatest concern. Considering the factory aesthetic that we usually associate with modernist architecture and the Bauhaus especially, the school's founder, Walter Grofius, would surely have stood with Matesius. But, as it happened, he vociferously sided with the man he would eventually inherit the directorship of the Weimar Art School from, Velde. This Belgian painter stands at the threshold of the 19th and the 20th centuries, and so resists facile categorization, what described the Art Nouveau itself which Mattesius called a Wechselbalg, a shapeshifter or changeling, could equally apply to the man at the heart of it. Though he is often overlooked, the influence of his ideas is still present in how we think and argue about architecture today. Henry van de Velde was born in 1863 in Antwerp, Belgium, and died in 1957 in Oberegeri, Switzerland. Of the figures we have so far focused on, he was the first to live past the end of World War II, though his era of prime influence stretches from 1895 to the so called golden dawn of the 1920s. Within the context of fine art versus applied art that we have been exploring, he may have had the most professional authority to speak on their enforced union, because While he would later practice as an architect, a teacher, and an industrial designer, he had begun his career as a painter. After attending the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Antwerp, he had gone on to study in Paris under the acclaimed portrait painter Carolus Duran. This was in the 1880s, and currents of change and ferment surrounded the student. His teacher's works, for one would have been seen by the established critics as strikingly modern, with a style reminiscent of Manet. His simple backdrops lacked all symbolism, even when portraying themes in Greek mythology. Women no longer coyly held books, and men did not display their scientific instruments. The velvet-draped backgrounds sometimes lacked in detail altogether. The stark lighting that shone on clear faces was likely under the influence of rapidly advancing techniques in photography. Just a generation earlier, the likes of Ingres and Delacroix had celebrated high symbolism and classical allegory. Now, in these industrial times, the newly minted bourgeoisie demanded an accessible and simple likeness. Vandevelde, though, would veer into another direction entirely, setting a pattern that would prevail for the next 100 years. What had lately been shockingly modern was about to become yesterday's news. Velde saw an exhibit of the so-called post-impressionists, amongst them Van Gogh, Signac, and Seurat, all of whom seemed to move past realism. In Seurat and Signac's pointillism, tiny elements of vision, milliards of colored dots were exploded and revealed. For the first time, an image's colors explicitly mixed in the viewer's brain instead of on the canvas, as if they were paleo pixels. Van Gogh captured the unique perception of the artist, where the life force of people, fruit, stars and chairs was expressed in vivid swirls of vibrating color and line. While Carolus Durand's work demonstrated a near-perfect vision of typical human perception, Van de Velde became enamored with the strongly individual character evinced in the work of the post-impressionists. In 1889, he formally joined the Brussels-based group of cutting-edge artists that included Pissarro, Monet, Seurat, Gauguin, Cézanne, and Van Gogh, inserting himself into what would one day become the encyclopedia entry on late 19th century modern art. He did not, however, stay in its ranks for too long. Setting an early precedent for Andy Warhol's famous abandonment of museum art to embrace the power of mass media, Vandevelde gave up painting in 1892. Though a single picture could potentially be seen by many people, it was only one object. The industrial arts, on the other hand, could be reproduced, yielding a much broader impact. He would now design carpets and fabrics wallpaper silverware fashion even advertising posters all of these mass-produced objects could carry the expression of an artist beyond the museum and into the homes of millions in 1911 at the werkbund congress there must have been a knowing look cast as motesius marked 1895 as the annus mirabilis for the outbreak of the Art Nouveau. The furniture and interiors of Samuel Bing's art gallery that bore what would become the movement's name had been designed by Van Velde that year. Suddenly at the center of the next big thing in art, his work was circulated in art periodicals and received excellent press in Germany. He subsequently received several commissions in Chemnitz and Berlin. A project in renovating Friedrich Nietzsche's house brought him to Weimar and undoubtedly drew the dying philosopher's ideas even closer to the currents of modern design. Van de Velde would later be called upon to develop the cover and layout for the posthumous first printing of Nietzsche's *Ecce Homo*. In 1889 he settled permanently in Weimar the small town that Goethe had called the most perfectly urban of all places. By 1905, the great-grandson of the poet's employer, the Grand Duke Wilhelm Ernst Karl Alexander Friedrich Heinrich Bernhard Albert Georg Hermann, Wilhelm Ernst to friends, sponsored Vandervelde in founding the Grand Ducal School of Arts and Crafts. This was the institution that would later develop into the Bauhaus. Shortly after the outbreak of World War I, Belgium famously refused to volunteer itself as a highway for the German army and declared war on the Kaiser. The fact that Van de Velde had the trust and endorsement of a highly regarded nobleman from one of the most famous duchies in the empire could not prevent the tides of war from pushing him to leave his adopted home. Staying for a time in Belgium, he spent most of the rest of his life in Switzerland, where he remained active in architecture and designed the radical departure of a skyscraper library for the University of Ghent in the 1930s. Ever embracing change, he specified a footstep silencing black rubber floor for the reading room, but to reduce cost, a conventional marble floor was installed instead. Vandefelde is perhaps most famous for his articulation of line. We have several examples of his work, in two and three dimensions, posted on the Lapsus Lima website. While he never took Art Nouveau to the florid extremes that his countryman Victor Horta did, whiplash recurves remained a signature element. This was also the signature sense of line on which his theoretical arguments were based. A sculpted line can be expressed with equal clarity and force, whether it be in writing, painting, and graphic design, tableware, or architecture. In 1907, Van de Velde published a book outlining his program for design entitled On the New Style. In it, he shrewdly alluded to his Art Nouveau bona fides. While employing the distinct phrase Neuen Stil instead of New Art to mark his distance from the faded movement. In this publication, concurrent with the start of the Werkbund, van der Velde closely echoed the ideas that Muthesius championed. We must recognize the meaning, the form the purpose of all things in the materialist modern world with the same truthfulness with which the Greeks, among so many other things, recognized the meaning, form, and purpose of the column. It is not easy to find the precise meaning and the precise form for the simplest of things nowadays. We shall still need a great deal of time to recognize the precise form for a table a chair, a house. Once again, the watchword form is presented as the object of theory and practice. Revealingly, van Velde points to the Greek column, famous for its enthesis, or slight curve, the intention of which puzzles scholars even today. To give a case, the columns of the Parthenon appear to be straight, but include a very subtle curve that has the side effect of making not just every column, but every drum segment in each column subtly, but definitively individual and unique. It was the question of preeminence between the standard type and individual expression that formed the conceptual divide between Mattesius and Vandewelder. While both were in agreement that discovery of correct form was what the country badly needed, how exactly one was to discover it provoked the differences. At the 1914 annual Werkbund Congress, things came to a head, declared. In Pioneers of Modern Design, Nicholas Pevsner quotes from the debate as Matthesius made his case that architecture and the entire sphere of activity of the Werkbund tends towards standardization. It is only by standardization that they can recover that universal importance which they possessed in ages of harmonious civilization. Only by standardization, as a salutary concentration of forces, can a generally accepted and reliable taste be introduced. To this, Velde countered, As long as there are artists in the Werkbund, they will protest against any proposed canon and any standardization. The artist is essentially and intensely a passionate individualist, a spontaneous creator. Never will he, of his own free will, submit to the discipline forcing upon him a norm, a canon. As we already mentioned, It is interesting to note that Pevsner goes on to blithely assert that Grofius, the heir to the Weimar art school and future founder of the Bauhaus, was obviously behind Motasius. The output of modern design had clearly shown it, and Pevsner was arguing for a line of descent from Ruskin and Morris to Grofius. Such was his confidence in this narrative that, after quoting this debate, he calmly stated, Now our circle is complete. And this is what many students in the history of design end up believing. It is far from the full story, though. Pevsner was analyzing an apparent through-line of history that would seem true enough were it not for further contradictory evidence from the horse's mouth. I discovered within a footnote of the book Peter Behrens and A New Architecture for the Twentieth Century. That, in 1964, historian Stanford Anderson spoke with Walter Gropius about that Werkbund debate. Looking back on his youth, the chagrined architect apparently pictured himself as the enfant terrible of the 1914 Werkbund affair. He had seen the plea for type as bad in itself and evidence of a lack of artistic and creative feeling on the part of Muttasius. He therefore led the campaign against Muttasius. And knowing that Velde was not only the institutional forebearer, but also the ideological godfather of the Bauhaus, puts a stark conceptual conflict at the very inception of that institution. If Grofius wished to synthesize the fine and applied arts, perhaps he also wished for a synthesis of type and individuality in design. The short, dense history of the Bauhaus has its own unexpected meanders that we will explore in upcoming episodes. Stay tuned next week as we take a closer look at Walter Grofius, who would become the Silver Prince and the reluctant spokesman for a modern style he always said never existed. Thank you for listening.